Welcome to another episode of Fans in Motion. As my partner in crime, Andy, who is not here, would say the ultimate Night Ranger podcast that you didn't know you needed. So joining me today is the uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Kevin Rankin from the, uh, what is it, like the New Wave Legends flock <laughs> of seagulls and ultimate Night Ranger fan. So, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you jumping on with me on such short notice. My pleasure, Josh. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, so Andy and Brent uh, weren't able to record with me this week, and I had a change of schedule with my kiddo. And so me and Kevin have been working on a few things, and I, I said, Kevin, hey, can you help me out? And here he is. So... Uh, yeah, man. Let's so, talk night uh, range. We're going to talk night. We're going to talk all kinds of stuff. So, um, so I mean, from 35,000 feet up, I can tell you Kevin is currently the drummer for a Flock of Seagulls. Now, when I started doing some research, um, I was a little pissed that you guys still didn't have the hair thing going, oh. right? Well, I mean, you, yeah, you, you're, yeah. You're, you're playing along, yeah. but... Uh, you know, it's like, all right, you know, but um, yeah, I, it's going to be interesting because, you know, we're going to talk about Night Ranger, but I want to kind of eventually talk about, because if you're listening to this, you're a hardcore Night Ranger fan. And what do we always say? Oh, man, what's they got to play Sister Christian. That's, you know, right. like there's more than that. Well, let's look at it from that view of flock of seagulls an iconic 80s band that has an iconic song and if you're not a hardcore flock of seagulls fan that's the song and the image you know just like a lot of people's image and song that they know of night ranger is sister christian right so we're going to talk about those dynamics and everything but uh let's start at the beginning so Kevin, where does it all start for you? Where are you born? Where are you raised? I grew up in Montana, actually, which is uh, where I got to see my very first concert. It's on Night Ranger on the Midnight Madness tour with uh, ZZ Top in 1984 in uh, Great Falls, Montana. But um, yeah, I grew up, for the most part, I was out in a cabin in the woods outside of Bozeman, Montana for all of my formative years. Now, and see, I'm from Ohio, and I, I just automatically assume that when you say Montana, right? Like, right. Isn't every place a <laughs> yeah, right? Well, like, well, you know, you're military. I don't, I grew up uh, well, near the Air Force Base in Great Falls for a while, so there's uh, there's a little military presence, yeah. but but uh, yeah, no, I I um, I spent a lot of those those years where we discovered all the beauty of of Night Ranger in the remote parts of Montana where there were no people around, and all I got to do is just blast my music as loud as I could. Now, you know, isn't all Montana remote? Um, yeah, pretty much, yeah. You know, like you know, hey, the once a year we pack up, put on our Sunday best, and we go into Billings. Um, but uh, <laughs> so uh, so Montana, what? So I I know a little bit, uh, mostly like the southern part where you got Billings and you have uh, Battle Little Bighorn and. All that stuff. Now, where are you at? That's South Dakota. That's, but that's no, no, no. Battle of the Little Bighorn isn't. That's in Montana. Billings, no, right? No. 
like I think, and you you might even be right, man. If I'm wrong, then I apologize. But uh, uh, I was thinking it was near Custer's, you know, uh, Custer National Park, which um, or Custer State Park. Regardless, that eastern part, yeah, eastern Montana is Billings, and uh, and the southern part is Bozeman, which is where I'm from. Great Falls is more central. Missoula is up north, and so Great Falls is uh, Great Falls and Billings are kind of the more populated areas. Bozeman and Missoula are the college towns, and that's pretty much all you see in Montana. Um, Bighorn County, Montana, is the Battle of Little Bighorn. So uh, I'm going to I I need to know exactly where you're at. So what did you say that city was? I'm from Bozeman. Bozeman, Montana. So let's see here. A lot of green. A lot of green. Um, I can't believe I missed the bighorn. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, all right, so yeah, you're uh, what what is that one highway there? Highway 90 will take you to uh, did you ever go see the Billing Mustangs while you're out there? Oh, yeah, I was in Billings quite a bit on tour with my you know, as soon as I started playing drums, I did this circuit right from Billings, which is in, in upper, I guess, North Dakota the circuit along 90 all the way over to, you know, all the way out to Seattle. So you'd have like this, you know, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota circuit, all the way to Minnesota. But, uh, but that's, that was as far as the touring thing would take me, but Billings was kind of like the big city that we'd all go play when we were in Montana. And, uh, but how do you know the Mustangs, the baseball team? Well, I mean, I I've been in Southern Montana before, but uh, I'm a Reds fan. So they were, the Reds, oh, the uh, farm team. yeah, but who doesn't know um, about Billings? I mean, it's uh, it's a thriving metropolis. Uh, so, yeah. um, but uh, you, so I'm kind of going to skip ahead. But you're talking about that touring um, circuit there. Did they? Did, how was the music scene? You know, in that area, being so remote. Um, I guess like off the top of my head, I can't think of bands that came from that area. I mean, even bands, let's say like Hinder, you got Oklahoma City. There's right. always, you know, you got Slipknot from Iowa, but right. off the top of my head, you know, um, you know, I can't think of, you know, bands coming out of that area. So was like in 1984, 85 and so forth, was there a thriving music scene up there? Uh, no, see, that's the thing. Everybody needs to leave Montana to go do music, which is what I did. Yeah. But yeah, no, in the eighties, um, you know, I was going through high school and then college. And so I was touring, playing cover bands and some original stuff. You throw in well, you know, one original song for every 10 because people don't want to hear your originals unless you kind of style them and whatever form sounds like you know the bands that are popular at the time but we do lots of night ranger for sure we always did don't tell me we always did you can still rock in america and uh i would set up my drum kit just like kelly off to the side and the songs that i was singing kind of got a little showcase piece there and uh, you know it was great because we had a keyboardist in the band so like night ranger it's great that you can showcase the drums and the keyboards on two separate risers and not have it look off center you know, doesn't really work with the flag of seagulls very well because I'm kind of tucked back <laughs> behind my boss, you know. But uh, but yeah, no, most people they don't uh, they don't find their musical fulfillment staying in Montana for sure. Now, did um, be bordering Canada? Did that Canadian? Because if you know, if you go to like Buffalo or upstate New York, 
you're pretty much you know you're blending in with all that canadian i think you're issued like a kim mitchell cassette tape or something yeah right Uh, so did that stuff (laughs) did that stuff bleed in to montana i mean you know where you listen to you know rush and triumph and all those canadian bands uh i mean triumph had obviously a little bit more success and rush obviously but like you know i guess i mentioned kim mitchell where yeah you go 100 miles south of canada the canadian border People don't know. Yeah, but unless you're a huge Rush fan, because Kim Mitchell was a big part of Rush's history too. But but that's interesting that yeah, you mentioned that the yeah, a lot of people consider Montana like Canada South, you know, and we'd go across the border, you know, to go to Calgary and Edmonton and and some of the cities that were directly north in Alberta. But uh, yeah, Rush became a huge thing in all the small towns. I think you know probably in the Midwest, you know, people could relate to a lot of the songs from Rush. I wasn't a hardcore Rush fan because as a drummer, you were either in the Neil Peart drum camp for Rush or you were John Bonham Zeppelin camp. And I was probably more Bonham, you know, and, but um, my 24 year old son is such a rabid Rush fan. And I got to see the band five or six times and he'll never let me live it down that I never got him to see them before they, they retired. And so um, I feel a little bad about that, but our guitarist from a flock of seagulls is Toronto. And he, yeah, he's, he lives in Toronto. He's from Toronto, from Toronto. He was on the same record label as rush. And he, uh, his band spoons is uh, they were a big Canadian band. And so everybody assumed because they were Canadian that they had to somehow be tied into rush. And there's a chip on their shoulder about that, but I don't know how you could, you know, fault anybody for seeing how brilliant that band was, you know. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, uh, and uh, what was the band Kim Mitchell was in before he went solo? Uh, 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 Max Webster. Yeah, uh, Max Webster. And 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 Max Webster, like, and Rush actually did a song together. So, really? yeah, yeah, they did it. Because I, I interviewed a guy. Um, that works a lot with White Snake. He's, he he produces all Dave Coverdale stuff down in, in uh, Reno. Tom Gordon, and he had just redone this song that Max Webster did with Rush, and with uh, a big it was um, a fundraiser for Native American um, um, arts. And the song is so huge, and I didn't, didn't even I didn't even know about it. And Rush fans came through the woodwork, you know, finally when they found out about the Max Webster connection, but. But uh, um, that's impressive that you know from from Ohio that, uh, that you would well, know Mitchell and I had I was in the military and I I spent a lot of time with uh, uh, some guys from upstate New York. So you know, hey, hey, you don't know Kim Mitchell? Like fuck no, I don't know Kim Mitchell. I'm, yeah, I'm from fucking Ohio. Yeah, we just played so, with Kim Mitchell actually. Really? Yeah, we did a show up in uh, London, Ontario, with him. So. It, uh, it was a, a weird pairing of us. Brett Michaels was on the gig. Cindy Lauper was on the gig, and uh, yeah, and Kim Mitchell. Oh, and uh, uh, from Mister Mister um, uh, Richard um, Page. But yeah, weird weird lineup, and and a flock of seagulls right in the midst of it all. You know, yeah. like I said, if you're in upstate New York, uh, you know, 1985, I'm pretty. You had Kim Mitchell cassette tape, uh, roast beef on Weck in the other hand. Um, <laughs> So was um was drums the first instrument that you gravitated to or did you go some oh. other instrument and then end up with drums? I wish I could say drums were I played clarinet first. 
my dad was a Dixieland jazz player and he was in these bands and, uh, and I just thought it was super cool to go watch him with his band. And then I hit puberty and I realized my girls just don't gravitate towards the drummer. There are two of its clarinetist. I saw the first Motley Crue video and I said, Oh, okay, that's it. Drums is it. I have an uncle who was a jazz drummer in Chicago and I went to go see his drums and I instantly, it changed everything. And that was the, the year that I got to see Night Ranger too. And um, yeah, it was game over at that point. That was all I wanted to do. So when, when did you decide that, you know, I mean, maybe you didn't, I guess I'm, where I'm getting at is what, how did you get out of Montana? Did, did you leave Montana knowing that you were wanting to do a music career or was it you left Montana with the broad and somehow fell into the music career? <laughs> how, how did, uh, how did leaving Montana work? I dragged the broad with me. You know, I was, it was funny. I was actually, yeah, I was married to my childhood sweetheart. We were, we met when we were 12 before I started playing drums, but uh, I had always wanted to go to LA. You know, it was the eighties, man. Everybody was going to LA to the sunset strip and they were going to go rock and, and become rock stars. I stayed behind when all of my friends went to Los Angeles and I finished university at Montana state. And, um, you know, it was kind of like the backup plan. I knew I wanted music to be everything for me. And I got a music studio teaching minor, but sociology was my main focus. And so I got a bachelor's in that. And I was a youth counselor for a while. And um, then, you know, I, I was going to go out to Portland. Actually, I was interested in criminology. I wanted to be a serial, serial killer uh profiler i wanted to be a criminal profiler and uh you know silence of the lambs came out i wanted to do that along with rock stardom and uh as i was going to college a bunch of bands that were touring i would always get on the concert committee and i would go drum tech or i would go set up and run spotlights and i kind of be part of that whole scene just to kind of witness what was going on at the major levels and um so I worked with a lot of bands that were really popping in the 80s, for sure. You know, Poison, Warrant, uh, um, Warrant, Sarah Singer, Win Winger and Cinderella and, and uh, like those, you know, the big hair bands. And um, then I, there was uh, the college, the, the concert committee at the college put together a couple of um, big shows at the fairgrounds for these up and coming artists because the grunge thing was just starting to take off. So we brought in Alice in Chains and I saw Alice in Chains right before they took off, got to know the drummer, Sean Kenny a little bit. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a new energy for a lot of this music. And so, um, so I connected with that in my art classes. One of the kids there said, you know, you had a book, my cousin's band. Um, I got, no, it was his brother. Yeah. So uh, my, my, my brother, Barry, or my brother, Jeff, Barry Amen was my classmate. Jeff was uh, in this band, Mookie Blaylock. He said, you should book Mookie Blaylock to come in and play this show. Um, so we had them coming in between the time that we booked them and the time that they played, they had changed their name to Pearl Jam because they, uh, they got picked up on the record deal and they had to change the name. So Pearl Jam came in right at the formative time for that band uh, alive the video had just come out they changed drummers at that point and they had one guy for all of their crew one guy was setting up drums guitar bass setting up you know the uh the testing checking monitors and 
uh, teching everything without really knowing anything about drums. So when they brought in the drum kit, I saw him set it up and it was kind of set up funky. And I said, hey, man, you want me to tune that kid up? And he's like, no, 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 he likes it that way. And I'm looking at this drum set thinking nobody could play a kit like this. The drums, none of the heads were even tightened down and the, the drums were kind of off kilter. So I tightened up the floor toms and tuned those up. And then Dave Abersee's drum, he, the drummer walks in and he's playing the kit. And he's like, man, Scully, you know, his, the tech. It's like, dude, these sound great. And he looks over at me knowing that I got on the kit. And uh, he says, you know, Dave, this is the local, you know, this is the dude that tuned up your stuff. So Dave and I hit it off. We hung out all day, kind of like, you know, we talked about Kelly. He, mm -hmm. um, Dave had joined the band fairly recently and the, the rise, the meteoric rise for that band was just starting to explode. And uh, so we hung out all day at the show. I was just kind of like his, an appendage, you know, and, um, and we were hanging backstage and he said, man, I don't even have crew. We're going to Europe for like the next six weeks. I'd love to have some help. And I said, man, now I'm, I'm going to college. I'm getting married in a couple months. And uh, between you and me, I don't want to set up somebody else's drums. Right. But, but I said, let's stay in touch thinking I'd never hear from him again. And he wrote me a letter talking. He charted out the parts of the songs that I was talking to him about. And he said, dude, when I get back from, you know, from tour, we should come out, have you come out to Seattle. So on spring break, I went out and stayed with him for a couple of weeks. And I realized, wow, this is totally, this is an inside look at somebody that just made it. You know, he just got his Pearl Jam Platinum card. And, and I was this broke college kid and wide-eyed, you know, like stars in my eyes kind of thing. And he treated me and my fiance like stars. You know, he took us out to dinner and um, we went in the studio while they're recording the second album and he's showing me all the drum parts. And I just, I, I it was everything I wanted from music. And so I was going to move to Seattle like everybody else was, you know, to get into the music scene, but couldn't convince my, my fiance or my wife that Seattle was the place. Cause it just felt too big to her to come from Montana, but I helped a friend move to Portland and I loved Portland. I went out to the Northwest and I had just graduated college and, it was time, you know, for the next step. Portland wasn't taken off the way Seattle was, but I called Dave up and I said, hey man, do you know anybody in, in Portland? And he goes, dude, all the promoters, everybody I work with in the business, they're all moving to Portland. That's the place. He said, I can totally help you out. So I moved to Portland, I had my bandmates with me, had them happen, come out to, uh, to Portland and we were gonna have Dave's contacts help us out. And he got fired right after I got to Portland and disappeared, you know, yeah, at that point, the band was so big, you know, they were the biggest band on the planet. And, um, and it was a really difficult time for him. And again, it was my eye opener. I saw somebody who got to be at the top of the heap and then completely have the rug pulled out from underneath, you know, and um, as a person who wanted to play music for a living, I saw both sides of the spectrum. And I felt like, well, I'm glad I got my backup plan for my degree. And um, Portland really felt like it became home. You know, I, I was I was out hustling every, you know, I, the band that I was in were my buddies in college. But I saw this other band that I, um, right after I moved out, that was a female fronted project. And this girl that fronted this band played like I'd never seen. Um, to this day, she was probably the greatest songwriter of anybody I've ever worked with. Her name was Leah Kruger. The band was called On Alama, weird band name for sure. But I, um, 
I was so blown away by this chick, her voice and the, the songwriting. And she was this wicked, funky bass player. And it turned out they needed a drummer to come and do this showcase for a label. And they asked if I could do it the next day in Seattle. So I had less than 24 hours to learn the stuff. I immediately joined that band. And for the next four and a half years, just chased it, man. You know, to the point where we were in the midst of signing a record deal and one of those deals got, you know, kind of got pulled out from underneath. And again, I got to see, you know, peaks and valleys, but well, that's, that's probably more of the, the Northwest story for you than you wanted yeah, to hear. But no, I mean that, well, again, um, uh, this is, you know, the, the stories I like because it, it always is. It's weird how opportunity meets. And, uh, and obviously, you know, if you, if you've been, you know, practicing your skill, it's not always, it's not just luck. It's like when that luck hits, you got to have yeah. the talent and, everything there to take opportunity of it um but just you know hey we're gonna book a band that's half named after mookie wilson of the mets right know? all right you know okay you don't think twice about it but then they become pearl jam right you, you get that connection <laughs> and and just with a lot of groups it's always interesting to hear the stories or just wonder about it um how you have that high of being a rock star um just you know helping out night ranger you know three decades after you know the mtv era right it's still neat to see i can't yeah. imagine what it would be like um back then but it's addictive it's it's fun it's it's yeah. cool to see that and i always wondered kind of you know, there's always someone there for you. It's loud, you know, every, you know, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden nothing, you're just right. there by yourself. No one wants to talk to you. How <laughs> does that fuck with someone's, um, someone's psyche? And I always mm -hmm. talk about the story of Bobby Blotzer wrote a book and he kind of probably the best scenario of it. So, you know, grunge hits, they're out of work. And but he's making good money, he has coin operated machines, and he's got this like carpet cleaning business, right? And he's like, dude, it's you know, yeah, it's carpet cleaning, but I'm still making good bank. So he talks about this one landlord that he always helps. He wanted to clean a business or apartment in a bad neighborhood, which he never did, but he's gonna help this guy out. So he's got to lug his shit up like you know, like a third floor apartment building, and it's a bad neighborhood, so he's constantly looking out at his equipment that's sitting right outside the door because he couldn't get all of it in. So he's sitting there cleaning this carpet in this bad neighborhood and this shitty old, um, you know, apartment. And he looks out to look to see if his equipment's still there. And as he looks right beyond that, all the way out in the distance is the LA forum. And he's uh -huh. like, he goes, it just hit me that seven years ago, I was headlining that place. Right. You know, yeah. and it's like, and that I give him credit for because he's the one, you know, a lot of these musicians, they don't, you know, write about that, for, but he wrote about it. And yeah. I always thought like, wow, like that tells you. So, uh, yeah, like when you're talking about Dave having those highs and lows yeah. and just kind of going off the grid, 
Yeah, heck, that might have been the best thing for him. Just, uh, you know what I mean? Just uh, Well, you, you know, I mean, I, Dave and I talk a lot now. You know, he disappeared for a few years. And the sad thing for me, and I'm glad you pointed out that about Bobby, and I hadn't heard that story about Blotzer, but I know Bobby a little bit. The vulnerability, you know, from somebody in this business is rare, you know, especially when you hear about the shitty times, you know, because, yeah, I mean, the the pride of a lot of guys that have musical success, they're not talking about the other side of things, right, where they're struggling. And um, I used to love the TV shows that would come on like VH1 where they talk about where are they now? And after the 80s music scene kind of got enveloped by the 80s grunge or the 90s grunge thing. You know, they were showing guys from kicks, like painting billboards and, uh, you know, working menial, you know, minimum wage jobs because they didn't have, you know, anything as a backup just in case or they partied it all away. Right. And so they didn't have anything set in the in the bank. I mean, good for Blotzer for having a business. But Dave Aberzies, when when he was fired. um it was really tough. I got to see so much of the stuff behind the scenes in the years leading up to his termination. You know, I would go out and see some shows on the road and I'd watch the way he was treated. And I thought, man, I could relate a lot because he was a very outgoing guy. You know, I, I get teased sometimes because I'm the guy that's out talking to kids in the crowd. And I love it when people bring, you know, their teenagers because I remember how much music did for me when I was a teenager. It saved my freaking life, man. And so when I see somebody that brings a kid out, I'll go out, I'll bring him a pair of sticks and we'll talk and we'll hang out and talk about life and real life, not fake, you know, stuff. And so with Dave, when things were leading up to his termination, he was getting shit left and right. He'd do an article for In Modern Drummer where they'd interview him and he'd get yelled at because he was, you know, he was uh, approachable from the fans and he was actually, you know, vulnerable and opening up about his life when it was supposed to be aloof and mysterious. And, um, so that was kind of the unseating for him that his personality cost him the gig. And it was just because he was a good guy. Now I know a million people might not get that, you know, they might think of, oh, you know, like, um, at least he had that window, but it's unfortunate that right now, it's still a huge wound for him. You know, I look at his his socials and I watch his engagement and I've had him on my podcast a couple of times talking about he got snubbed, you know, organ, yeah, or the, the, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame, yeah. right. Like he wasn't invited. Right. They had three other drummers and they were all invited and he wasn't. Well, and they didn't even put him in the hall. I was like, how can you have the drummer who was there for years at the height the height the height like all the videos he was on the 10 tour he was on versus uh he was on uh mythology i I lost track after that but anyway yeah that's it i mean that was after mythology was when he's gone but that's the height like that is what you know when when you do a history of pearl jam or you do a movie of pearl jam that's the area you're going to you're not going to you know whatever albums are after that you know right. i don't even know what they are but uh and he doesn't get into the hall of fame it's and crazy the, yeah. and the and the band doesn't push for it yeah that's i know yeah yeah he got fucked bro i mean i'm yeah. and i it's really hard for me to watch because it is a really tough pill for him to swallow and i i sometimes will reach out to him and say man everybody's pulling for you you know i mean everybody is and everybody knows you got fucked and it, it is a drag 
But at some point for him, I hope he's able to realize. And that what I told him at that point when he got canned, um, I tried to find him. I drove up to his house because I was worried about him and he was gone. And that, that same tech that I told you about earlier lived next door to him. And he was telling me, he said, dude, Dave took off in the middle of the night. I don't know where he went. I knew he was from Houston. So I thought he might've gone back to Texas. Turns out he went to a shaman down here at the New Mexico or Arizona talked to, he, you know, he kind of like talked to a shaman about his identity. You lose your identity when the band that you were iconic with just strips you from that. Mm -hmm. um, and I told him I could give a fuck about Pearl Jam. You were the guy that spent time with me till I got to know you as a person. And I loved that era of the band. And I, I loved the band because of you, but I loved you for you had nothing to do with that band, you know? And when he was no longer in the band, people probably didn't want to hang with him because they wanted a part of that band and I could care less. You know, I'd rather know somebody for their decency and their character. And so that's what I hope he finds strength in. That's his legacy for me. That's not that Aaron Pearl Jam is that he took a kid who had stars in his eyes and showed him how you could still be a, an approachable, generous, good human being, even at the biggest point of your career, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I did mention it to him in the podcast that I did with him, but I'm hopeful that he really can find peace in his heart mm -hmm. from those times, you know, it's tough, you know, it is a hard thing, but. And then that rock and roll, I say, you know, it's like maybe right when you're getting to the point you're okay with it, rock and yeah. roll fame comes up that happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that right there was a perfect time to where, that could have healed everything yeah you're, you're right you don't even have to be sitting with the band just hey i'm in the rock and roll fam it's acknowledged yeah. uh you know i don't know i mean uh yeah like, but it I, sounds like it's good that you know all this stuff about <laughs> it like yeah that's cool I, I guess uh i mean i guess that we you know i guess if you want to look at a, a bright point i don't know bright points but that we can have this discussion about it. Yeah. Merits his involvement with the band. Yeah. You know, for if, sure. I mean, if we were having this conversation, we'd be like, hey, he doesn't deserve to be in there. But, and I don't really fucking like Pearl Jam. I just, right. I just know the history of it. And sure. Uh, you know, I don't like the Rock and Roll of Fame to begin with. But, yeah. uh, you know, when I saw that, you know, it's kind of like, uh, how does Ronnie James Dio not oh. get inducted with Sabbath? But David yeah. Coverdale gets inducted with Deep Purple. Right. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but, I, yeah. I I enjoyed Coverdale and Glenn Hughes with Purple, but you know, and yeah, you know, okay, that they you can't deny some of those albums they did and Cal Jam '74, such an iconic show, and you got Coverdale and Glenn Hughes there. But uh, you know, you took an iconic band like Sabbath, right? and reinvented them and made them you know yeah uh you made them important again you yeah, replaced, well, you replaced ozzy a, fucking osborne yeah. you did it well <laughs> oh right? man yeah like one of the greatest singers and humans in the in the business right and yeah I, you know there are a hundred stories that we could have about the rock and roll hall of fame and you know and not any of them end well you know, but most people in the business know that it's kind of a joke and I'm not a fan of award shows. I'm not a fan of 
saying one band is better than another because it's all subjective, right? And so it's like saying, you know, one guitarist is better than another. Well, at what, right? Faster licks or, you know, their tone or, but, you know, <laughs> this is not at all. This is a weird thing for me. In October, I was in Portland. I moved the day after I was inducted in the Oregon Music Hall of Fame. And I had, I had to say, well, by the way, I'm moving to New Mexico tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it was, I felt horrible about it, but Portland and Oregon itself was a really special place for me. It's where all the, the changes in my life happened with music. And it was a really special thing. And I told the director when they talked about me being inducted, I said, this feels uh, ironic because I'm not a fan of these. And I was on the board of directors for Oregon Music Hall of Fame for a while because of their music education program. They gave out scholarships to, uh, you know, kids that, uh, that were, academically there, but they didn't have the finances to go to school to pursue music. I loved that. I loved being you know, able to help sort of push people towards that education, but I didn't want to be in one of the roles. I was never a voting member and I don't really feel worthy of any of that induction. Um, and the director said, this was about character, man. You were involved a lot in the community, you know, at all levels where you were mentoring, you know, schools and kids and, um, and a lot of the bands that, you know, I made contributions to. So I'm grateful and I don't mean to seem ungrateful in that. And I felt really strange in saying, thank you, Oregon. I'm out of here, you know, but, but I found a sanctuary here, man. I'm in this amazing place. I don't know if you got to spend any time in New Mexico, but Santa Fe is, is a really special place to me now. So I think I drove through it. Um, you know, I maybe took a wrong turn in Albuquerque or something, but uh, oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, a lot of desert down below. I'm up 8,000 feet, I'm up in the mountains, I'm up in the forest again, right where I wanted to get out of in Montana. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to the city and pursue rock stardom, and I couldn't wait to get out of the mountains. And now I am in the most serene, quiet place. Just I walk out the door up the mountain, you know, with mm. trees and yeah, 8,000 feet, you know, it's it's a little thin air but uh it's beautiful man it's mm -hmm. it's amazing um so when grunge hit did did your music that you were playing and hoping to make a career of did it go towards the grunge you know thing or were you still sticking to the hard rock uh you know, scene, where were you going with that in that era? You know, I stayed a fan of all of that. I mean, I like my heart lives with the 80s Sunset Strip era stuff. Uh, when I showed up to Portland with my double bass drum kit, the band said, we can put this one over there and, you know, strip things down. I adopted the grunge vibe, the you know, the sort of appreciation of it because of Dave Abersees. I became a huge Soundgarden fan and I didn't even really consider that grunge. I was so blown away by Cornell and Matt Cameron. And, um, uh, you know, I liked Alice in Chains, you know, those, those bands, um, more because I could see like Alice, I could, I could see the influence that a lot of the 80s sunset strip bands had on Alice in Chains, uh, harmonies, you know, the, the just real deep rooted guitar solos. Well, I think Poison took them out in their first tour, if I remember correctly. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can totally uh, see it. For the Facelift tour, um, and before Grunge Hit, they were on Headbangers Ball. So, right. I mean, they yeah. 
before grunge, I mean, they were in that skid right. row type, yeah. uh, type thing. And uh, um, yeah, so what you're saying about having that influence, it's there. I mean, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, you mentioned Sabbath earlier. You could totally see that influence on Soundgarden. You know, you could hear the, you know, the dark side of Soundgarden. And, and Cornell, you know, to me, I thought was the most gifted of all of those vocalists. You know, he was the one guy that stood above, you know, his, uh, it was, again, it was really tragic, man. His loss, we did the band, one of the bands I was in in, in Portland, we, we played shows with with uh, Chris on his solo tours. And I I was floored by that guy's, the depth of his commitment to music and his passion, you know, and his voice was ridiculous, man. And, um, you know, you would appreciate, because I know that you're backstage a lot with like the Night Ranger guys. And so you get to see the real stuff, again, the vulnerable stuff and, you know, everyday stuff. The first show that this band I was in played with Chris Cornell, I was on a solo, he was doing the Sun Shower solo tour probably um 2009 maybe i'm guessing somewhere around there and there's a venue in portland that we were playing the roseland theater uh it's a decent sized theater it's like 1200 or something like that we have a shared green room downstairs and i'm down there and the manager comes up for chris and he said hey look man if we're all sharing i don't want you getting near him no eye contact no talking to him and i said no eye contact and he's like yeah yeah you know chris he's on a thin he's uh he's on thin ice right now i said oh, okay so i'm sitting on this couch and chris comes downstairs sits down next to me on the couch and i'm looking straight ahead at the wall and he goes all right i said uh yeah i was not supposed to talk to you man he goes what so yeah no uh i was instructed to give you some space and he goes oh man well that's because the last time I was in this room, I had a little bit of a drinking problem and a drug problem. And I said, yeah, I'm aware. And he said, so we had played in Brazil. And apparently I got so fucked up on the beach that I married a Brazilian girl on the beach and my wife found out about it. So I was in this chair and on this couch when a sheriff came in and served me in divorce papers, when she found out that I had gotten divorced or got married, you know, again in Brazil, he said, so maybe my manager thought that was going to be a trigger but we're all good and I thought, that's a good rock and roll story i like this man but he was great super fun down earth and what a freaking badass performer yeah i mean i you that first audio slave record uh, his voice i mean i like the Soundgarden stuff like bad motor finger all that stuff but uh um that first audio slave record. I mean, it's like three in, or it's like four instruments. Yeah. You know, the drums right. but it's yeah. Uh to me, that's where it yes. it peaked. And he did that uh cool cover of Billy Jean before yeah. it kind of became like the cool thing to do of covering right. songs and slowing them down. Um but uh so when the when you was talking about the the group and i apologize for not remembering the name but you said the record deal kind of got pulled out from under you um where did it go after that were you considering okay i got that college degree do i go back to doing that or did you start looking for another gig or did some luck kind of sprinkle into the mix yeah well you know i said that the rug got pulled out from under really essentially any person that's out there that may be an upcoming musician 
um, I would recommend them to understand what the business is all about, right? So uh, I was not a, uh, a contributing writer in most senses. So for that band, it was a three-piece band. Um, my publishing portion was very small. And so when we were negotiating record deal stuff, uh, I was out hustling to get all the record companies to come find us, get showcases. And one of the companies, this Atlantic rep in New York said, hey, we're coming out to see you, but we were told to maybe just focus on the singer. And I said, who told you to focus on her? And he said, your manager. I said, we don't have a manager, but she did apparently. And so they were trying to negotiate the deal just for her. And so it was the same old story that you hear a lot of times with bands where there really wasn't a lot of upfront communication about how we were going to be three musketeers and go off into the sunset, you know, and have a successful partnership in business. That discussion didn't really happen. And so it became too late at the end. And I left right in the midst of signing a deal. She eventually got shelved and, and the band didn't take off. But what it did show me was that I had a lot to learn about the music business, a lot to learn about communication. And my idea about success in music was that, you know, we're going to be this united front. We're allies. We're going to go out there. We're going to conquer the world and we're going to be successful. And we'll share the, you know, the spoils of our labor um, but not everybody had the same idea. And I think it's so important for people, if you're going to be in partnership in music, it's the same thing to be in a relationship, romantic relationship, got to be on the same page for everything. If you're going to have kids. How are we going to, you know, co-parent? How are we going to, you know, handle discipline? And so I had a lot to learn. I wasn't done with music, but what I did realize is what, what the bride that I brought out with me from Montana She'd always taken a backseat to my pursuits of music. And we had talked about having kids and I really did want to be a dad. I told her, if I don't have what I deem to be what I need from music by 28, let's focus on kids. And that was when I turned 28, when that happened. And so I decided to be a dad. <laughs> right after I had my first son, uh, the band Animotion, called me. I don't know if you know that band. Obsession was like their big sort of hit song. Um, but this male singer from that band lived in Portland and he had seen that band that I was in. He was looking for a drummer to do a one-off reunion gig. And at that point in around 2001, the 80s resurgence was just starting to come back around. Uh, you know, the Lilith Fair and the grunge era, those things were kind of out. Um, you know, the early 2000s thing was was more industrial and you had a lot of, um, um, you know, like bands like White Zombie and and that kind of thing hitting rock radio. But the 80s thing was starting to pick up because most people that grew up in the 80s were just at the point where they're getting a little bit of uh, expendable income. Um, their jobs freed up a little bit and they had a little more time and a little more opportunity to go out and see music that was formative in their youth. And so this resurgence of all the 80s bands started popping again. I know Night Ranger too started doing bigger shows and package shows at that point. And so Animotion was going to do a one-off show. I met with the guy and sight unseen. I mean, we, we sat down and we just talked and it was such a great hang that he, you know, hired me for the gig. We did the one gig in Fresno, California. And I was a rocker guy. My nickname's Kevy Metal, right? I mean, most of my buddies knew that I was a hard rock guy, but I grew up with those songs. I was roller skating to those songs. And 
while I was like, you know, Scorpions was like the band for me. I mean, the, the, that era was everything. Like Prince is, let's see, the, Prince was another person for me that changed my life. And um, so Prince kind of was this bridge for pop stuff for me. And I roller skated to those songs. So when Animotion came and said, yeah, we want to come do this gig, I thought, well, this is a cool step up without really thinking that anything was going to come from it. The guitarist from that band had been with Rod Stewart already for about 10, 15 years, and he was doing massive arenas. The keyboardist from that band was the guy that played on the Thriller record with Michael Jackson. So Billy Jean beat it. That's him on keys. The other people in the band had enough of their own career going that they didn't need Animotion. But that guitarist who was with Rod Stewart said, dude, this drummer is really into this. I mean, he's like a rock dude. We should consider doing more shows. And so that turned into a 16-year career with Animotion where we started doing all these big package shows with all these 80s bands. And I never would have thought that in my musical aspirations that that was the direction I was going to go. But I started picking up all these gigs. You know, Animotion was playing with these, you know, a whole bunch of different bands from the era. A Flock of Seagulls, Wang Chung, Berlin, Motels, Tommy Two-Tone, New Shoes, like all those bands that were big MTV pop bands and Missing Persons. Like all these bands started asking me to sub for them whenever they needed a drummer. So I was kind of making the circuit of, you know, getting pickup gigs whenever they'd come up. And eventually that's how I got the flock, the, the gig with the Flock of Seagulls. The, uh, the drummer was a good friend of mine and he burned his hands really bad and uh, couldn't go off and do a cruise through the Caribbean, uh, an 80s cruise. And so they asked me to sub on it. And that has now turned into like the seventh year with the Flock of Seagulls. And we're doing like a hundred shows this year. It's nuts. So it, uh, full, full transformation from heavy metal to whatever this is. And, um, you know, going back to talking about the carpet being pulled out from under you, I thought of that, uh, you know, if you're a musician, uh, one of those lethal weapon movies where, you know, the hitman, you know, is looking down and, and the boss is like, what are you looking at? And he's like, to see if I'm standing on plastic. If you're a musician, keep an eye on what you're standing on. If you're standing on a rug, you know, be aware that uh, it could be pulled. Um, yeah. And and you're talking about that resurgence of those 80s groups in the early 2000s. Um, kind of talked about this on other podcasts. It really, to me, that all started in about 1995, where where these bands slowly started becoming legacy acts instead of right. recording artists. Started with like the Eagles. Yeah. And then you had, you know, these 70s bands, Kiss in 96. That was like one of the biggest tours. Um, and then with the 80s, I could almost pinpoint it. I mean, they started getting back together in 97, 98, but they're still playing the small clubs. I saw Motley Crue in Dayton, Ohio at a theater, like a Masonic Temple or something, maybe 2,000, 3,000 people. This would have been the winter of 98. Oh, yeah. So again, Motley Crue, theater. That summer, they were playing... Polaris Amphitheater, which was an 18,000 seater shed now with the Scorpions, but yeah. you could see where, to me, that's where that shift started. Yeah, right. And uh, 
it kind of matches right up with those early 2000s with the you know started getting into the 80s and i mean you kind of see it 10 years ago you had bands like creed reforming right you know, so some of those bands for the late 90s and and if you just read the news uh some 41 just announced that they're breaking up but to me that's a smart business move because you can't have a reunion tour if you don't break up right right, right. So, right. so you know they they didn't say they're you know retiring they're not having a farewell tour it's just hey this is our last tour so hey you break up you, you, you get back together in six years you have a big reunion tour a couple right. little tours in there and then you can do a farewell tour number one so uh um yeah it's just josh you're familiar with the publicity spin you sure <laughs> you got it you gotta you gotta you gotta think you know 10 years down the road right. um but uh so flock of seagulls and again I, we mentioned i mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of the episode a little bit uh, before my time i mean i was 82 i was it was it was i ran yeah. 82 83 yeah. or something around. 82. So I, I would have been five you know six years old um but still cool uh <laughs> so when the, how familiar now i'm sure you probably get, became more familiar being on that circuit with them yeah uh, but let's say before that how familiar were you with Flock of Seagulls? Mm -hmm. Did you just know that one song? Did you know a couple others? In oh. 1982, if I tracked you down in Bozeman, Montana, would you have had the funky haircut? You know, no. what did you know about Flock of Seagulls before you kind of got into that world? Well, you know, I'm one of those guys that if a band is sort of typecast for having their one hit. I, I will purposely seek out the other songs because I, I, for me, Space Age Love Song was the coolest song Flock ever did, right? So when, when I was discovering the new wave stuff, Space Age Love Song was one of my favorite songs of that era. And I did have the first record from back, back in the day, but it was buried beneath my Kiss records and beneath, you know, all my Scorpion stuff, right? So uh, I was definitely more the rocker guy. Um, one thing I discovered, you know, over time, like Animotion, even though like Obsession was like their big sort of break song, there's a ripping rock guitar solo in it, like just blistering solo. And and that's what kind of set that band apart. They weren't just a synthesizer band. They actually had a, there was a rock vibe with the guitars. Block of Seagulls is known for their synthesizer, sort of um, the impact they had in the synth world. You know, the bands like New Order and, and OMD and, and Gary Newman and all these artists that are really synthesizer heavy, Depeche Mode was like the later part of that. Uh, there was this brilliant guitarist in A Flock of Seagulls who was 16 when Iran came out. And uh, so he was a real innovator. I didn't know that about A Flock of Seagulls when I joined the band. I just discovered it over time, you know, as fans have come to me and brought all this stuff to me. And I feel a little guilty that so many fans know tons more about the band that I'm in than I do. But yeah, I mean, I always like that. Uh, I mean, when you think Flock of Seagulls, I think probably from the video, you think of the keyboards. Right. And yeah. I always liked I mean, it's a real simple riff, but that that little echo that, nah, 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 you know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I just always thought that was you know very cool i mean it's usually the easiest shit that sounds the best right. uh but that's such just with the echo and it just fits i that's the musical part that always i gravitated to yeah and so you're, too. You're, you're talking about the you know other stuff with 
you know, guitars. It's kind of interesting that there's more beyond that. And I get the typecast thing. I mean, I'm the same way. Uh, you know, if there's a band that I only know one song, I'll go check out more songs by that group. But usually, you know, I'm like, yeah, there's just one song. But uh, um, but every now and then you find a group where you dig into it and you're like, okay, there is other mm -hmm. uh, other stuff there. Um, you know, it just as an aside, because yeah. another, I mean, they had, you know, three, like, you know, top 20s that were big and wishing I had a photograph of you was another that I loved, but we did a show. And it's interesting that um, while Night Ranger and a flock of seagulls don't do a lot of shows together, we do have a show coming up like Labor Day, which is I'm super excited about together. But they, I know the Night Ranger does a lot of stuff. They did Survivor, right? And John Waite, I think as well. We played with both Survivor and John Waite in Chicago. And John Waite came back to me in the hallway and he said, man, you guys are doing Wishing, right? I said, well, yeah, of course. You know this song? And he goes, that's the greatest rock ballad of the 80s. And I'm like, what? How, you know, first of all, John Waite is brilliant, man. And he's such an amazing singer and wrote just huge songs, but that he would purposely seek me out and then throw a bone our way, you know, and I had to tell our singer that. And he's like, oh, that's cool. You know, it didn't really seem that big to him, but to me, you know, that's, that was super kudos, you know, so. Mm -hmm. but anyway. Well, and it's crazy how some of these songs that were so huge have, I don't want to say are forgotten, but they're definitely, you know, where you, you turn on eighties radio and you're going to hear songs, but like, let's say what was the song uh, you just mentioned uh not uh, wishing uh, or space well, age yeah uh you know that was a big hit then but you don't hear a lot of it now just like maybe like sentimental street and four in the morning right top 20 top 10 hit but you very rarely will ever hear that on you know 80s rock or you know 80s stations you always hear other songs and it's just amazing what songs were so big at a time and then kind of have been forgotten except for maybe the uh the hardcore fans uh you know to, to flock's credit like mike scores the singer mm -hmm. and you know god love that dude man he has done something right with licensing because in one year span he had like space age love song was in spider-man homecoming he had Atomic Blonde had Iran, Transformers uh, had Iran. Uh, it was the same year La La Land had Iran, uh, Grand Theft Auto by City, the video game. He still does very well. 15 years after Grand Theft Auto by City came out. Mm -hmm. But I mean, um, but Space Age and Wishing both had prominent things in movies, which brings this whole generation of teenagers to our shows. When I see kids singing a lot of that stuff in the front row, I'm like, okay. How do you know this song? It's your parents just forcing the 80s stuff on you. And they're like, no, no, no. You know, Stranger Things and and all these other TV shows and movies are bringing that stuff out. And so I don't know if our singers got, you know, a licensing attorney that's going out and shopping that stuff for them. But hopefully, really, hopefully he didn't lose it in like a divorce in 2002. No, no, he, he, he owns it, man. He owns it. I mean, he's, he's doing just fine with it. And I, the pandemic didn't hurt him too much. Not like the rest I'm, of us. I'm pretty know. sure he, he owns it. You know, he's, what's this in my pocket? A hundred dollar bill. Get that yeah, out of here. Like, which, which of the four, 14 Porsches should I drive today? You know? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that is, um, you know, even with like Night Ranger, uh, 
you've got that youth coming out and right i mean the resurgence of vinyl i think helps it uh you know just having something tangible um yeah. i mean i always collected vinyl because um that's you know from that era era that's how they was originally intended to be released yeah so you know i wanted all my 70s and 80s bands that i liked i wanted the vinyl because it wasn't meant to be on a small cd case right. or eventually a thumbnail you know yeah. so i liked having and you know it sucks now because oh i need that album it's 50 bucks i remember i think i bought it or i passed it up for five bucks in right. 2001 um but uh what do you think is the biggest like misconception like with me i don't know shit about flock of seagulls i know i ran i know um you know there's some very cool haircuts <laughs> yeah i mean that's it uh what's the biggest misconception you think there is when it comes to flock of seagulls well the you know really expecting it to be all substance and you know and then style or style and no substance uh is one thing you know the haircut thing that stuff goes away, right? The singer was a hairstylist. He owned a hair salon. Now he's completely bald. When people come to the show and they're disappointed that they don't see that, I've had a lot of people say, well, why doesn't he just wear a wig? Well, then it kind of cheapens his authenticity, right? He wants to be known for the songwriting and whatever. Um, I think the songs, what I've found, the songs really impacted people at a time in their life when they needed something you know, to hold on to. It's the songs that people made out to for the first time or the songs that, you know, they, they've got married to. And, uh, and so there's something more to the substance of the song than just the aesthetic. And, uh, I am grateful when people tell me these stories, when they come out and they talk about that, um, even though I wasn't in the band then, you know, it brings a little bit more, um, responsibility for me to do it right you know to really serve it up and and uh I, my favorite thing is to meet people out on the road that have stories about how the songs impacted them it's funny when people come up to mike and they're like hey remember in 1982 um you played our grad night at disney i was one i was wearing that pink thing on my head my girlfriend she had a really nice and sure yeah whatever you know don't remember those things but but people get so excited about that um, so, you know, that is, I mean, I, I think you as a music fan, you know how the music made you feel, you know, and it's one thing to appreciate, you know, the the chops, you know, like, uh, you know, the dual guitar, Jeff Watson, Brad Gillis kind of stuff back in the early records or, or, you know, the, the sort of the united front that that band has always sort of presented when you see, but really the songs make you feel a certain way. You know, you talk Sentimental Street and uh, Four in the Morning and, um, you know, when you close your eyes, that's one. I see people crying when they when they play that live because I've seen a lot of Night Ranger shows and I'm a fan, you know, through and through. But I love watching people's reaction, you know. And those songs really made people feel a certain way. And um, you know, so no one would ever say that Night Ranger was a band of just fluff, glam band, you know, a style band and no substance. You know, their the songs were you know, well-crafted, 
this is a huge hooks and they weren't simplistic songs that were made to be sappy radio songs, you know, like there's complexity in the music, you know, and uh, one of my favorite things is to tell somebody that might not know their catalog very well, but I'll tell them to go pick apart like Kelly's drumming and say, yeah, it's not as easy as you think. Now try doing it and sing it at the same time. Right. And then it throws them off. And they're like, oh, okay, forget that man. You know, and they respect the band a little bit more, but um, with a flock of seagulls, there are some bands that were out there that were just, you know, they were, um, you know, they were, well, when I think about the glam scene, the eighties glam scene, there were, thousand bands that got signed in 1986 or whatever and of those thousand bands there were about five that were really killer that kind of rose above the rest right and um and everybody else kind of tried to copy the style and the look but they didn't have the substance that was down below and so usually those bands that had the substance would stand the test of time or the fans and they would still they might be touring today um People are still coming out for a flock of seagull shows. It's awesome. I'm grateful for it. I man, I mean, I can't even think. We've of the last thirty shows, we've had two that didn't sell out, and and some great great venues. You know, I don't take any of that for granted. You know, I'm I'm so grateful. I think too, just like you know, looking back on it, is you know flock of seagulls didn't have that hit in 84 85 86 when there is a shit ton coming out on mtv they right. were there right at the beginning yeah so it's new and it's fresh everybody is yeah. flocking to it right and um and so you know you you know when when you whenever you think of the 80s you think of mtv yeah. well if you're at the right age and that's just coming up it's brand new what video is kind of out there when it's new there's not a lot of videos out there so you know you, you're, you're going to get a little bit more rotation yeah um, so i you know i think too the timing of it it was there at the beginning oh, yeah so it, it it got a lot more exposure to where if it had just been two years three years later it might right. have slid in there in the 80s it would have been a hit but maybe not when you're talking yeah. about those memories yeah there there's not a a hundred other videos at that same time you got memories tied to there's right. just a few in 82 yeah. 83 that you have um that yeah. you have you know memories uh tied to um you're so right man yeah, yeah. Uh, you know good you were a little bit younger you mentioned you were born in 77 so mtv coming out in 82 83 uh you know you probably weren't watching mtv at that point right well, you know I mean, I had, my aunt was 10 years older than me. Okay. And I, and I always liked music. I mean, I had a 45 of John Lennon Imagine and all that shit. Or not Imagine, but a woman. And I mean, I remember MTV, you know, when they were still playing, what is it? The uh, the Bugles or whatever video killed the radio star. The Bugles, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, obviously not the first time, but like that was still in rotation. Yeah. Um, I remember they would have like MTV Classics. Yeah, and it would be a half hour, but it was like the same videos all the time. It was like a Bruce Sp Springsteen live video, "Stop Dragging My Heart Around." Yeah, uh, uh, the Rolling Stones uh, with like the parachute or something. So like I was watching it at a at a young age. Like I, I my grandma took me to go see Night Ranger. I had just turned eight. Wow, nice so, man. So I was 
you know, in you know, watching that, but uh I will say that like that music wasn't mine. Uh that's what got me to Night Ranger. Like my aunt had this Night Ranger record. I want you to listen to this. I'm like, I'll listen to it later. I'm playing video games or something. And that next day I listened to it. I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, yeah. like, why is Kaja Gugu on my fucking TV? And you know, this is, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that's what, you know, got me, um, got me into, you know, Night Ranger. But I think it's like a very good example. If, if you're out there listening and you're Night Ranger fan, obviously like me, we get so built up in, well, Night Ranger had Dawn Patrol, Midnight Madness, blah, blah, blah. Man, Emotion is one of my favorite yes. records. And then you had the the Gary Moon era. Then I really liked Neverland when they got back together in the 90s. And eh, Hole in the Sun was eh, kind of a little bit of a turd, but whatever. And then like somewhere in California in 2011 is great. And I, I really like High Road in 14, ATBPO in 2021. And you got all the stuff. Like you think everybody knows that. And there's people just like that with Flock of Seagulls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know they had a record. I, I don't even know what it was called that had a few hits on it. Yeah. And that was it. Right. I don't know anything about the nineties or reunions. Sure. And so that's what we as night Ranger fans have to realize that 99.99999% of the people out there, you know, think the same thing about night Ranger. Right. There, yeah. was, a, there was a record with sister Christian, and, yeah, you know they had that that one song, uh, kind of like wishing it was uh, "Don't Tell Me You Love Me," and then you know when you close your eyes and maybe a smattering of others, but uh, um, yeah, when you look back at these bands, um, there's a lot more than just their iconic yeah. song. And as much as you, you know, I'm sure there's flock of seagull fans like, oh god, you know why are they playing? Uh, I ran. There's yep. you know, track ten off that song in 1994 <laughs> that they should have been playing. And oh but, yeah, you know. Oh. But if you go and look at the crowd when I ran come comes on, uh, you know, people lose their shit. They and, do, yeah. and they wait all night for it. Yeah. No, I will tell you this to, to your point. We played Disney World uh, two weeks ago. Played six shows in Disney. Played three shows a night. Two nights in a row, half hour sets. You got to play the hits, right? You would think. Kelly and I just talked about this. Not everybody goes to all three shows, right? There are people that come to one show and they don't see the second show. They don't see the third show. So you should do Space Age, Wishing, and Iran, I think, you know, and they have a couple of other hits that were top 40 that the fans know, but you could fill that half hour with songs they had on the radio and be good. But our singer wanted to mix it up. So second set, no Iran, no space age. And people are coming to me like, what the, and including the promoter. And I'm like, dude, it's off. I had nothing to do with it. Talk to the boss, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, I know. And um, there are some people who are like, oh, smart move, man. Not playing Iran, you know, that'll keep people coming back to the third show. Well, no, you're at Disney World. You know, people with their, their kids there, they're probably not wanting their kids to have to hang out for a while for the third show. But I, uh, you know, I, I know, I mean, you mentioned Springsteen. I was never a hardcore Springsteen fan, but all my buddies said, you got to see him once. I went, it's a three and a half hour show, right? No breaks. And, and I knew Springsteen's hits um, from the radio, but he didn't do them. 
I knew one song. He did Born to Run. He didn't do Born in the USA. He didn't do Dancing in the Dark. He didn't do any of the hits. And there was a stadium full of people that ate it up, man. Nobody's walking out because he didn't do, you know, Born in the USA, man. They, they were there to see Bruce do his thing. It was he gets a pass. I don't think a flock of seagulls gets a pass. Speaking of Bruce, I love Bruce Springsteen, but so I went and saw him and it was on the, he was doing like an anniversary show of the, uh, the record, the river, which is a double record. Oh, great, great so, album. So, you know, he's playing 20 songs and he's playing it in order. He opens with a song that never made it on the record. Wow. All right. Which is fucking awesome. Yeah. It's a great song. And then he plays the whole record, you know. So how how long does that take? A couple hours, right? So then you know, then he starts playing, just you know, hits here. You know, he did play Born in the USA, but then you know they'd go to something else and Jungle Land, and um, but he had played most of the hits, um, you know, like the three and a half hour mark. You know, he'd played Glory Days, Born to Run, Badlands, uh, um, all those, right? Yeah, and I'm thinking, what else? You know, what else is going to play? And then, yeah. you know, so maybe like he's playing Badlands right now, and it's at the three hour forty five minute. I'm like, this has got to be it. There, he's already played all these other hits. Yeah. They, then they break into Tenth Avenue Freeze Out. Oh which my! Is, which is just a regular track off the Born to Run album, and I'm like, if he's playing this, anything's in the cards right now. Right. Yeah. Uh. And he played another song after that. He started at eight o'clock on the dot, and I think they stopped like at eleven fifty-seven. Wow! So like right, four yeah. hours. I, um, my my his hardcore fan, my buddies that are hardcore fans, and guys that know the crew and and guys in the band, they've said, you know, he shows up and there's no set list. He shows up and he'll call them out on stage. He'll just call it out, and they've got their eye contact, and because the set's different every night. So, you know, I mean, we go out and we'll do a 75 minute set and it's pretty much the same set every night. You know, we'll mix it up some, but these guys were saying, yeah, no, Bruce's set is different every single night. And then friends of mine said the hotel that he was at has a community gym at the, the downstairs, seven o'clock in the morning, he's down there pumping iron, you know, at like, you know, six hours after he finished coming off stage after almost four hours playing, he's down there pumping iron in the morning, you know, and I thought, okay. That dude deserves Hall of Fame and then some, right? So that's um uh, he uh like I was amazed too uh when I saw him they were doing uh Hungry Heart and he had the stage and then they had a uh like a ramp, like an ego ramp, but two of them on the, each side of this side of the stage it went out and then it cut through the middle of the floor. So okay. Was, okay? Yeah. So he went out during Hungry Heart, you know, during like, you know, the midsection, went out all the way to the where the stage was in the middle of the floor. And so what, maybe 30 rows back from the you know main stage. And he just he just kind of like points to where he's at now and points to the front of the stage. And he turns around, opens his arms, oh. and falls back. And they take him all the way. Nice, man. No, no security, nothing. I was just so surprised. Like, that's yeah. a lot of trust. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, the guy's know, such a badass, man. Another story, you, you'll probably like this with the drum wise. Uh, I think it was right around 
the river session. So it would have been like late seventies. Um, Max. Uh, Weinberg. Uh, yep. Max Weinberg. Um, he just wasn't cutting. Like, you know, he, he was not keeping up with the rest of the band and he'd yeah. already been there, you know, a couple albums and, you know, Max is getting all worried and uh, Bruce pulled him aside and, you know, he's like, who's your drumming hero? He goes, you know, Ringo Starr. He goes, you need to call him and see what he did and get it figured out. And that's all he said to him. And he called Ringo and uh, did stuff. And, you know, because nice. he was close to probably getting the boot, which, you know, he wow. didn't want to do. But I just yeah. like that story where he's like, you need to, who's your drumming inspiration, your hero? And Ringo started, well, you need to call him and get this uh, figured out. And, uh, What's great too about the river is he had a whole album recorded, ten songs, done, ready to go, and he pulled it back, and scrapped it all, re-recorded a few of the songs, and did that double record. Yeah, maybe two or three songs from that original record um, made it on to the river. But he released a box set. So there's like 20 songs that, you know, that he kind of like did nice demos of. A person probably could have made a career off those 20 songs. Like right. there's a song on there called Roulette. That oh, is yeah. just fantastic that, you know, that he left off that record. Um, but uh, yeah. So welcome to the Bruce Springsteen uh, podcast. That's funny. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can't go wrong with uh I always said Born to Run's probably the quintessential number one rock song. It's got everything. It's got the raspy right. vocals. Rock's supposed to have raspy vocals. Um it's got, it's, X. it's got the rebellion like yeah. lyrics, like you know, yeah. hey, you know, I'm gonna grab my girl. Take on the room. Um, yeah. it's got, you know, just that, you know, even though it's a saxophone. Oh yeah, but it's that's rock and but roll sex, man. Clarence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um uh it's got the dun 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 where it breaks down. Dun, yeah, dun, right. You know, and it's kind of yeah. just holding it's those anthem. notes. That's what it's an anthem. Right, yeah. And then it's it an just, anthem. bam comes back and punches you. To me, Born to Run is that's you know, everything what does a rock song gotta have? It's gotta have all this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so let's nice. uh, let's uh, so, Thanks, coach. <laughs> so let's uh so where were you when welcome to the uh the hour 30 mark where we start talking about Night Ranger. Um the where were you when you first became aware of Night Ranger? Do you remember just what Yep. Yep. Yep, it was at um, Four Seasons Four Seasons Arena in Great Falls, Montana. Night so. Ranger. 